Let's open our Bibles to Psalms chapter 84 this evening. Psalms chapter number 84. What a blessing to be with you in the house of the Lord tonight. I uh, got good news for you. I was looking the other day, and I do this every year. I, I'm trying to, at this season in my life, learn to appreciate wintertime. I've always hated wintertime, for to be honest. I like fall uh, for all ten minutes of it that we seem to get around here. But uh, I, I've always sort of disliked winter, and uh, I'm not a big person for the holidays and uh, not a big person for the cold and things like that. And so I picked up the habit a long time ago of finding out when it is uh, that the, the, and there's a name, there's a sort of, a, a you know, astronomical name for it. Uh, I don't know what it is, some kind of equinox, uh, but a point at which it starts to get brighter, longer. Uh, it starts to change. You know, uh, right now the we have daylight from like 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., it feels like. And uh, it, it only just keeps getting worse and worse. Just keep losing minutes of daytime. And, uh, you know, sunset just keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier. But we, we have... We have crossed the threshold. And do you know that starting this next week, we get one minute of daylight back every single day. I don't know about you, but that's a blessing to me. Amen. It's just going to get brighter and brighter. Amen. And uh, then we get up to time change. Uh, it's, it's just there in the month of March. And uh, so these, these days of darkness hopefully be long gone by the time we get there. I don't know if that encourages you tonight, but it encourages me. It'll probably encourage you more than my sermon does. All right, Psalms chapter 84, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. And we're going to read the entirety of the psalm, although we will not use all of it in the preaching uh, on tonight. But I want us to, get, to have a little context, and I want to say a word about it. Psalms 84, verse number 1, the psalmist says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth. Yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our God, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointing. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Thank you for the good singing, the congregational and the special. Lord, how it blessed my heart. Thank you for the sweet spirit of worship that your people have brought into your house tonight. Lord, I just believe we have all the makings 
of a moving of God tonight. That You can move on our hearts. That You can address our lives and our situations. And that You can speak specifically to our great needs in our heart and mind and in our soul. I pray that You take the inspired Word of God, wield it as Your sword tonight. Father, may all that is accomplished redound unto Your praise, Your honor, and Your glory. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms 84 is known by most commentators as a pilgrim psalm. It is really centered on the image of an Old Testament Israelite making the pilgrimage where they live to the land of, of Israel or to the city of Jerusalem and then particularly uh, to the temple there for the sake of worship and of communion with God. But you know, the New Testament also describes you and I as being pilgrims and strangers in this world. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The psalmist likens himself to a pilgrim on his way to the presence and house of God. And in the New Testament, you and I are likewise likened to a pilgrim on our way to the presence and house of God. When we read through the 84th Psalm, I believe that the uh, psalmist is distinctly talking about appearing in the physical place of worship of God. He's talking about that temple that Solomon had built uh, there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, a physical geographic Location. I don't know the, the longitude and latitude of it to you tonight, but if I did know it, I could give it to you because there is a longitude and latitude. Uh, there is a specific geographical location. He's not talking about something abstract. He's not talking about something spiritual. But I would remind you tonight that as New Testament saints, our pilgrimage is not to a hill in Jerusalem, except in as much as one day we went to another hill in Jerusalem. Somebody say amen there. But our pilgrimage rather is to the very presence and throne room of God. And so as we read this passage of Scripture, I think there are three ways in which we can understand this pilgrimage that speak to our particular spiritual situation. The first would be the idea of going to the place of the worship of God. Now I'm glad to report to you tonight, it's true that you can worship God anywhere on this planet. Don't you believe that tonight? God's present everywhere. It's also true that God gave us a local church. Amen? So it must be that God sees value in the assembly of people together, of born-again believers, blood-washed child of God, to worship together and to meet together and to fellowship together. And I just remind you in a day uh, when the local church is looked at with scorn and cynicism that Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it. So I think there is a sense in which we could talk about going to the house of God, going to church and worshiping the Lord in the presence of the congregation. Then I think there is a sense in which we could all recognize that the pilgrimage we are on is not just merely to the house of God, but to the heaven of God. We are on our way to the presence of God at the end and close of this life. Let me say, man, I'm thankful that where we're living now ain't the end of it all. I reckon if this life was the end of all of it, I'd be more involved in the things of this life. I'd be trying to build a bigger bank account, get better politicians elected, try to clean up the water and the air and whatever it might be. But I recognize, and I trust you do as well, that this world is not our home. We are just passing through, and our treasures ought to be laid up in heaven, not down here. So there is a sense in which we could talk about the house of God where we come and worship. There's a sense in which we could talk about the 
a heaven of God where we are going one day to be in His presence. And when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then I think, and this is what I really want to think about with us tonight, I think there's a sense in which we could say that as a child of God, we can already be present in God with in heaven with God. Uh, Paul described it this way. He said, we are seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We are commanded in the book of Hebrews to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and mercy to help in, in time of need. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that we have access by faith through His blood into the very presence of God and we can come with boldness. So I'd say this, we could talk about going to the house of God, but you're out the house of God. We could talk about going to heaven, but every one of us that are saved, we're already headed to heaven. So instead I want to preach tonight on the notion of a pilgrim desiring to be in the presence of God. When we read through this psalm, we find that it naturally falls into three different portions. And they are neatly, the Holy Ghost was very considerate to us in this, divided by these three words, uh, usages of the word Selah. Verses 1 through 4 describe for us the pilgrim's hope. It's picturing for us the Old Testament pilgrim and their desire, such a, des- uh, such a strong desire that would prompt them to leave their home and to risk their well-being and to to exert the financial burden, to travel to Jerusalem and to worship in the temple. But can I say to you tonight, listen, while it's true that in the explicit sense God's presence is everywhere and with every believer and He'll never leave us and He'll never forsake us, the experiential presence of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I mean to get in God's presence and to fellowship with Him and to know His presence is there and to commune with Him, to hear from Him and to be heard with Him. It's going to take some some effort for us to enjoy His presence that way. So I would say that we have the pilgrim's hope, and his hope is to be in the presence of God and to worship Him. Verses 5-8 through present us the second portion, and it presents the life of the pilgrim. The first four verses show us the longing of the pilgrim. What does he desire? He wants to be where God is. Then we see the pilgrim's experience in verses 5-8, through and it presents the life of the pilgrim. What does it look like to be a pilgrim? And he goes on to describe for us in detail in those verses what it is to find our strength in God and to have our heart set upon Him to pass through the valley of Baca. And that word Baca means weeping and to make it a well and to go from strength to strength. It's not our message tonight. I won't, I won't dwell upon it, but suffice it to say that there is a life of seeking God. This thing of seeking God is not something that we just compartmentalize to Sunday morning at 11 a.m. and Sunday night at 6 and Wednesday night at 7. If we're going to enjoy God's presence and live in the power of God's presence, uh, it's going to be a day-by-day endeavor. We try to just push it to one part of our week. You know what we find? Even that part of the week isn't as meaningful as it should be and could be. Instead, it's a whole lifetime and it's a life pursuit. And then in verses 9-12, through we find the pilgrim's prayer. We could call this the leaning of the pilgrim. And we find this pilgrim on his way journeying to this place, trusting in God to enable him and empower him to make the journey. And we see his great desire to be in God's presence and his willingness to forsake everything in that pursuit. So we find these natural three sections of this psalm. Tonight I want to spend just a few moments and I want us to look at the pilgrim's hope. We could call it the longing of the pilgrim. I want to ask you this tonight. How badly do you and I want to enjoy the presence of God? Now when I'm talking about enjoying the presence of God, I'm not talking about 
speaking with an unknown tongue. I'm not talking about having some kind of vision. I'm not talking about uh, going smoking peyote and sitting in a steam room out in the desert. Somebody say amen. Yeah, I know where you're going on vacation. Go ahead and be embarrassed. No, I'm not talking about that. Instead, what I'm talking about tonight is I'm talking about uh, enjoying communion and fellowship with God. Living our life in tune with Him. And enjoying a walk and a life of submission unto Him. How bad do we want that tonight? I think a lot of the problem in our life and yours and mine is we say we want it, but we don't really want it. You can look at the way we live and tell that we don't really want it. You know what I found? The things that we want, we prioritize. The things that we desire, we make room for. You've often heard me say this, but I'll just remind you again, there's three ways that men talk about allotting time to things. They'll say that they need to find time to do something, but the truth is you can't find time. We all have the same 24 hours in a day, and people say, I want to make time, but that's an impossibility. If man could make time and create it and fabricate it, they would do it, but it's an impossibility to do. So instead, you know how we say it? I believe this is right. We've got to take time to do things. And in the same way, if we really have a priority in our heart to spend time with God, there will be some things that we're going to have to let go. There will be some things we're going to have to put on the back burner or else we're going to be putting Him on the back burner. And what we find in this passage is the longing, is the passion that the pilgrim has get in the presence of God. If you were to meet a pilgrim on their pilgrimage, there wouldn't be anything they'd want to talk about except their pilgrimage. They wouldn't want to talk about anything except where they was going, where they was getting ready to be, why they wanted to be there. You know, when you find people in love with Jesus, all they want to talk about is Him, where they're headed, how they want to be in His presence, how they want to live for Him. And that's what we find permeating these first four verses. So I want you to notice them with me tonight. Let's notice, in in my opinion, I guess a a commentator could maybe disagree with me, but you find this: these first four verses are divided into three portions. The first is verses 1 and 2. And in it we find the pilgrim's desperate desire for the presence of God. Listen to how he opens this psalm. Verse 1 he says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. Now the word amiable, you know what it means? It means lovely. It means beautiful. I still remember, and most of you men uh, that are married can probably say the same thing. You remember seeing your wife on your wedding day when she just began to walk down the aisle. And most men would tell you, and this is my opinion uh, and, and my experience, it's, it's emblazoned on my mind. I can still see her standing there in that wedding dress that her mama made. I still see her hair as it had been done, flowing, running down her shoulders. I can still see the makeup she's wearing. I can still see the shoes she's wearing. I can still see the smile on her face. Poor innocent lamb didn't have a clue what she's about to get into. But but I, I could see, and I can still in my mind, she is the picture of loveliness to me. I'm going to go ahead and score some brownie points. She's in the nursery, but I'll trust you all to tell her this. But I think she's more lovely today than she's ever been. What it means is observable beauty. You know what the psalmist says about the presence of God? He talks about the loveliness of God's presence. He says there is an observable beauty to God's presence. In other words, it is something that doesn't have to be manufactured. It is merely something that has to be manifested. 
to look upon God's presence or to look upon the communion and fellowship and favor that it endows to the believer is all that is necessary. It is not something that is subjective or left up to debate or dispute. Everybody that can see it for what it is is going to see how lovely the presence of God is. Now, I'd ask this question to you and especially to me tonight. If God's tabernacles are so lovely and amiable, why ain't we in love with them the way we used to be? Man, you remember how it was when you got born again and you was, you was excited to open this Bible and hear what God had to say to you. And you longed for and looked forward to the prayer closet when you could talk to God. You was excited to get to the house of God and hear the message that God might have for you. And all throughout your day, you were singing the songs of Zion. What happened? I would say this, that if it is observably beautiful, then the only reason we've lost the beauty of it is we've ceased to observe it. We've gotten our eyes off of Him. And let me tell you something. When we get our eyes off of Him, it ain't long. Uh, we get our eyes headed in a different direction. We'll start to follow that direction. Uh, the Bible describes for us the decline of, of church. And, and I would say in general, and I'm careful because there's a lot more I'd have to say to say it the way I want to say it. But in the book of the Revelation, Jesus Christ, seven churches are, are detailed for us. And I think it does in some ways uh, emulate and, and, and mimic the the path of the gospel in, in Western Christianity throughout human history. But suffice it to say, I think what he's saying to us in those seven churches is this is the, this is the path of apostasy and backsliddenness. And you know, it all begins whenever the church at Ephesus loses their first love. They got their eyes off of him that had died for them and sought them and bought them and, and delivered them, got their eyes off of him. And that starts a decline that leads until the church at Laodicea has locked him out and has no time or interest in Him anymore. I would say this, that passion begins first with perception. I'd say that fervor begins with focus. And I'd say that longing begins with looking. And I'd say if we want to love Him the way we ought to love Him tonight, we're going to have to get our eyes back on. Some of us struggle to love Him the way we ought to because we ain't, we ain't been in this book and looked on Him in so long. I found this, that the Bible is an easier book to not read when you don't read it. And it's a harder book to put down when you've been in it. You know why that is? Because God has structured that every element of Christian life be birthed out of faith. And because of that, the natural man loathes spending time in the Word of God. But if the new man will exercise faith in God and say, I'm going to dive in there and dig in there, despite the fact that I, I, I'm not necessarily excited about doing it, God will birth a passion and a love and a desire in his heart. You know why? Because it's an act of faith. And God will reward that faith. And that's why it's harder to pick up. Once you pick it up, it's harder to put it back down. We've got to get back in this book. We've got to get back in His presence. We've got to get back to the basic fundamental thing. Uh, all preachers have quit doing themes. You know why? Because they all did 2020, a year of vision. Look how it turned out. Amen. So we've all just quit. We've all quit. Uh, our, my theme is 2021. What next? That's my theme. But uh, I would say this, if there's anything we need to do this year, man, we need to get back to basics. Get back to the fundamental things. You know, when everything goes sideways, you, you let the fundamental things go sideways. I would say this, we need to get back to looking upon Him. He describes the loveliness of God's presence. Verse 2, he says this, My soul longed, yea, even faint for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out. For the living God. We see the loveliness of God's presence. Then we see the longing 
for God's presence. It's interesting the progression that is set forth to us. Once the pilgrim is is affixedly confirmed of the amiable loveliness of God's presence, his soul begins to long for that place. Now what is your soul? Your soul is your, your consciousness. But you'll find an interesting dynamic in the Word of God that while your soul describes your consciousness, your heart describes your seat of emotions. But you know what you'll find? Your seat of emotions lives within the realm of your consciousness. In other words, the thing that makes me love is not the fleshy organ of my heart that resides within me, but rather it's my soul that uh, lives in the, I would say, I'm trying to be careful here, I don't want to say more than I'm trying to say, but I would say that it lives within a man's mind and consciousness. That's where his soul is. That's where who he is is what he is. So here, the Bible lays side by side the soul and the heart. What's it trying to suggest to us? Well, I would say this, that when we find that to be the case, the soul is often being denoted as that part of us that communicates with God. I would say that when the soul and the spirit are laid side by side, then the soul is speaking of the consciousness of the individual, their personality, their personhood. And the spirit is talking about that part of them that is regenerated, that communicates with God. But when it's laying side by side, the soul and the heart, I think it's talking about that part of us that operates on a spiritual level and then the heart being that part of us that operates on the emotional level. And I would say this, that when you get your eyes on Him and see Him for who He is, it won't be long and that new man will be longing for Him. Desiring for Him. My soul longeth. And then notice what it says here. It even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. What does it mean to faint? To faint, I would say, is such a drastic removal of strength that it renders a person incapable of operating. You know, it's possible. And I want to be cautious in how I say this. I I believe when God saves a man, He saves him eternally. So I believe everything God does, He does right. Amen? And I don't believe a man can lose their salvation. I don't believe that we get on spiritual probation or anything to that effect. But I would say this, uh, that it's possible for us to spiritually faint before the Lord. It's possible for there to not be a single thing wrong with us physically and for our problems emotionally to not be tethered to anything circumstantial or anything biological or anything physical, but for us to have a chiefly spiritual deficit in our heart and in our mind that causes a weakness in us. If you've never lived that, if you've never experienced it, you might be looking at me looking like a calf staring at a new stall, but I would say this, that uh, it's possible if you live for the Lord to get weary, maybe not of the way, but to get weary in the way, and to grow to the point where you could spiritually faint before. What does it look like, preacher? It looks like giving up. tells me this, when a man's not spending time in his presence, he'll start to faint for the courts of the Lord. He'll get weary and he'll give up. Every single act of attrition in the spiritual walk is due to a lack of closeness and fellowship to the Lord. That's not to say that good men and good women and good people don't Grow weary, we all do. But I'm saying this, your weariness is no excuse for your absence. Your weariness doesn't have to define your failing and fainting and falling. In fact, I don't want to get in and preach my, my next message before I preach this one. But later on, it says that the pilgrim goes from strength to strength. What does that mean? It means from his strength to God's strength. You and I running out of strength ain't no excuse for us quitting. You know why? Because then we've got God's strength. That's the reason the Apostle Paul said my strength, said that the Lord had told him my strength is made perfect 
in weakness. And Paul answered back and said, well, then when I am weak, then am I strong. So we find a progression here where there is a recognition of the beauty of His presence. There is a longing and fainting for the courts of the Lord. And if that need is not met, then what do we see? My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. So then we see it progress from the soul, meaning that part of us that communicates with God, that interacts with Him, at least in this context, and moving to the emotional seat of our being, the heart, that part of us that psychologically exists, and that part of us that can have a a healthy or an unhealthy mental frame of mind. And I would say this, that while not every mental malady is a product of spiritual deficit, that it is possible for spiritual deficit in a person's life to unhinge their mind. It's possible. Listen, you as a child of God, God designed you to be in fellowship with Him. You better believe that if you live out of fellowship with Him for long enough, it'll break your mind. Uh, Part of what's going on in our world today is we're living in a world that's lost its mind. It's broken in its way of thinking. And there's a whole subsect of Christianity, or maybe it's the main sect of Christianity. There's a whole crowd in Christianity that was is living and operating on a broken ideology and a broken rationale. Uh, what happened? They've divorced themselves from the presence of God. And when they did, it broke their mind. I'm saying this, that, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody that has a, a psychological battle, and there are plenty of them, uh, that, that that's due to some kind of spiritual problem. But I am saying spiritual problems in your life can produce an unseated mind and an unstable mind. And then it moves to the heart. And then what happens? It moves to the flesh. In other words, I'd say this, that it can destroy a man's life when he's made and created and designed to enjoy fellowship with God for him not to live in fellowship with God. The key to happiness in your life and my life is not how much money we have and it's not uh, how many uh, things we have or, or, or fi- fiscal security. It's not physical well-being and safety. I'd say this, man, we're washing our hands more now than we ever have. Does the world look better to you? And I don't say that to say we ought to quit washing our hands. Some of you all nasty and that's what you'll do. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is physical security and safety and well-being is not the be-all of, of, of everything. You know, a man can be miserable and be healthy. I'd say a man can be unhealthy and be happy. Amen? I hope he can. Amen? I'm saying this, that uh, it doesn't even have to revolve around any of those things. Your well-being in life spiritually, it centers on your walk with God above and beyond everything else. So we see the pilgrim's desperate desire. He wants to be in the presence of God. But then we see in verse 3 the pilgrim's encouraging example. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen to what he says. Verse 3, Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now here the psalmist is meditating on whether or not he'll be given and gained entrance into the presence of God. And there is a thought that occurs to him as he meditates on that. He, as a man that had been to the temple many times before and had grown up around it, he begins to think about those birds that would nest up in the top of Solomon's temple. You know, God in designing the temple could have designed it any way that He wanted to. He's the one that laid out the blueprints for it. And while it's true that the Holy of Holies, the very place where the ark rested, was an enclosed environment that nothing could get into, when you actually look at the at the architectural structure 
of the Old Testament temple. It, it, you had the, the court of the Gentiles, then you had the holy place, but it was a, a, quite an, a, a loose and unsealed place everywhere except for the Holy of Holies. And it was not uncommon during that time for uh, birds, as they will do any time and anywhere, to find a place and the nest and to build their nests and to lay their young. Surely this was by design, or else I don't believe we'd be reading Psalms 84.3. God was very distinctly trying to give an object lesson to His people about who could get into His presence. Now, for us, it's not sparrows and, and it's not swallows, but any of y'all have starlings around? I hate a starling, don't you? <laughs> My neighbor, I got a neighbor that's about 90 years old. I come out one day, I heard somebody blasting away all creation. I went out back, he's out there. He was barely holding himself up with a 12-gauge shotgun. I said, Joe, what are you doing? He said, ah, these starlings. Shooting all over creation. What did you do, preacher? I brought a box of shells and joined him. I hate them, man. They get in everywhere. Everywhere. Wasn't uncommon for us a couple of years. I don't know how they was getting in. Some they was getting in our house. Somehow they'd, they'd fall down into one of our walls. We'd have to listen to them then for... However, you say, oh, that's cruel. I ain't busting up my sheetrock to get that dumb bird out. There, there's starlings everywhere. I only got one kitchen wall. Amen. And, uh, but in some ways, I think there's an analogy here. Sparrows in the Holy Land and swallows were so present and so prevalent that they just got everywhere, including the temple. Now, the omniscient, almighty, all-powerful God could have kept them birds out of the temple, but instead He allowed them in as an object lesson to His people. We see in this passage the humble inhabitants of the temple. Here's the illustration that the psalmist draws from it. He says, you know, if God would let those little worthless birds in there, surely He'd let me in there. If God has made space in His presence for even these worthless birds to be there, then surely He'd let me be in there. Now we learn a little bit more in the New Testament about God's feelings about sparrows and swallows, sparrows in particular. Because the Bible tells us that not a sparrow falls from the heavens, except God takes note of it. And while I don't have the math affixed in my mind, there's two places where the Lord Jesus, in talking about sparrows and their value, He talks in one place about two sparrows being sold for a particular price and five sparrows being sold for double that price. And in that, He finds that little buy one, get one free sparrow there that it's not even worth enough to be sold on its own, but it's just thrown in to sweeten the deal. And God even takes notice, not just of the sparrows, but of the least of the sparrows as well. It tells me tonight, listen, if God would let them in His presence, maybe I've got a hope of being in His presence. I'd say to you tonight, if, I, if you, want, you want to be made to feel a little bit better, I trust you do on this Sunday night. I'd say this, if He let me in, He'd let you in. Knowing me and knowing you, knowing who we are and what we've done. Uh, we don't feel welcome to be here even with our Sunday best on, but God knows us at our Saturday worst. And He still loves us enough that He sent His Son to die for us and He still permits us entrance into His presence. I'd say this, if they could get in, then surely you and I can get in. And I'm not just talking about salvation, I'm talking about getting into the presence of God and worshiping Him. One of the wonderful things throughout the Bible is the honesty of it. And of course it's an honest book because it's the Word of God. God is truth. But I love the fact that there are places, you know, you can tell the truth and then you can tell the truth. I mean, you can tell the truth like an adult and you can tell the truth like a big mouth child, right? There's two different ways to tell the truth. 
sometimes when you tell the truth, you ain't got to tell all the truth. Amen? Uh, like if your wife looks at you and says, you know, do I look fat in this dress? And you answer back and say, no, honey, you don't. You don't follow up by saying, but that color looks horrendous on you. You can tell the truth. <laughs> There's a difference between telling the truth and telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But you know the Word of God, it don't just tell the truth, it tells the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And all throughout the Old Testament, God presents to us great men of God that are cataloged for us, not just with their victories, but with their failures. Not just as being glowing examples of righteousness and integrity, but as being fallen and broken individuals redeemed by God's mercy. Why would God do that? Except He wants us as fallen individuals redeemed by His mercy to see that if God could use them, God can likewise use us. So we see the humble inhabitants here, but then I want you to notice there's a holy inhabitant. Now, I don't want to get you thinking that just because God would let even sparrows into His presence, that His presence is not a special thing. One of the things that I think the culture of Western Christianity has suffered throughout the years is that in a right and appropriate pursuit of being welcoming to any and everybody with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and like I said, let me reiterate it, that's a right and appropriate perspective. It's right, you know, if we thus judge that if, if all were dead, Christ died for all, that if Christ died for all, then we're all dead. He tasted death for every man. And listen, the church, it ain't a secret society and it ain't a social club. It's the place of God's presence and the place of God's working and the place of God's administration. Not to be a place that we welcome any and everybody into. But you know, one I think the ill effects of that is this. Somehow we've projected to the world that church ain't a special place. Church is a special place. It is. It's a place that costs the Son of God His life and His suffering. It's a special place. But somehow in this endeavor to want to be open and welcome, and part of it is probably just the, the world taking advantage, but there's been this sort of perspective that, oh, it's just church. Hey, can I remind you that God shows up to church? I ain't fussing at you tonight. You're here tonight. I ain't even fussing at the folks in the parking lot. They're in the parking lot tonight. Amen. I'm glad they're here. I ain't fussing at nobody. All I'm saying is that it's such a special place that even God shows up to. Who's this holy inhabitant of the temple? He says this, Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. He wants people to understand that this place where the sparrows dwell, it is no meager house, but it's God's house. Can I say to you, listen... Though what a blessing it is that broken, messed up, twisted up as we are, we can go into the very presence of God. It's not because we're worthy of God's presence, but it's because through His grace and mercy, He has positionally made us worthy of His presence. It's a holy thing to get to pray to God. It's a holy thing to hold His Word. You understand that the majority of God's people throughout human history have never held a completed Bible. And you and I sit here with it tonight. I'd say this, it's a high and holy thing. And when we spend time with God, we ain't just spending time with somebody. We're spending time with God. It's a holy thing. So we see in this passage the pilgrim's desperate desire and we see his encouraging example. But finally, in closing tonight, I want you to notice the pilgrim's righteous resilience. Verse 4 makes two statements. It says, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. We find in this two things, 
the first we see is the favor that the pilgrim enjoys. Now, when we speak of that word blessing or blessed, we oftentimes think of it not just as a state of existence, but as being a choice position that a person finds themselves in. And I think that's appropriate. I think both of them are appropriate. Do you understand, when you talk about somebody being blessed, you're talking about them enjoying the love and favor of God. I'm glad God loves everybody, aren't you? He sure wouldn't love me. If he's, if he's going to start parsing through, I'd be one of the first ones he'd kick out. Amen? So I'm glad He loves everybody. But you better mark her down that a life that is lived in obedience to God is a blessed life. And a life that is lived in obedience and disobedience to God, be it the life of a lost person or the life of a saved person, if it's lived in disobedience to God, it is a life that is not going to be a blessed life. God blesses obedience. God in the lost punishes disobedience. In the saved, He chastens disobedience. But suffice it to say, if you want your life to live under the favor of God's blessing, you're going to have to get your life in a blessable condition. The person that dwells in my house. Now, again, we could talk about heaven. Certainly that's true. Hey, listen, I'll tell you who's blessed tonight. Folks that are in heaven. I've never seen a society work so hard to keep people out of heaven. Have you? We live in a society where all we're told all the time. I'm talking about my children of God. The worst thing that can happen to them is them go to heaven. Weird world we live in, isn't it? I'd say this. You want to know who's blessed tonight? People in heaven's blessed tonight. They're not having to suffer the heartache and turmoil and confusion and chaos of this world that we're living in. They ain't looking at the news. They're looking at the Lord's feet. And they've got peace in their heart tonight. I would say this, that those that stay in church are a blessed people. I've observed this. I've seen it over 10 years of pastoring and, and, and about 16 years of ministry. I've watched people get in church and God bless their life. And I've watched people get out of church and God chasten their life and and, and, and pour disfavor upon their life. Now, I've seen people get in church and the devil try to hammer them to pieces and God still bless them and favor them in spite of that. I've seen men get out of the house of God and out of faithfully attending the house of God and seen them catapult to new heights as far as the secular world's metrics but live in, in, in torment and in misery and in unhappiness. I'm not saying it's always tied to the externalities but I am saying this, if you want your life to be blessed, get in church and stay in church. But I don't really think that's what we're going to look at. Because when we look at this, although there's an application to the heaven of God and there's an application to the house of God, of what we're talking about tonight is living in His presence. And I'd say this, if you want your life to be all that God wants it to be and all that it possibly can be, live in fellowship with God. When we read through the Old Testament, it's one of the most powerful Statements in the Old Testament uh, made is made by Elijah when he walks into the palace of Ahab and he makes this statement to the wicked king of Israel. He said, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand. F.B. Meyer observed, the uh, uh, commentator and Bible teacher observed uh, carefully the statement that Elijah made and he made this observation that though he stood within the throne room of the king of Israel, there was a greater throne room that he consciously and spiritually was residing within. He didn't say, as the king of Israel liveth before whom I stand. He said, as the Lord thy God liveth before whom I stand. He was standing in Ahab's palace, in Ahab's throne room. But Elijah did not fear and he did not falter and he did not fail because he was living spiritually in a greater, higher throne room 
than Ahaz. You want your life to be what God wants it to be, live in the throne room. Dwell in His presence. Stay in communion with Him. Preacher, what does that look like? It looks like living with an attitude and disposition of prayer. You know what an attitude and disposition of prayer is. It, it means you don't just pray when you fold your hands over a meal. You don't just pray when you set out on a long journey. It means you live every day in communion, in, in, in communication with God. We live in days today where communication is easier than it's ever been. Probably one of the, one of the hobbling elements to our prayer life. We can talk to everybody else so easily. We quit talking to God. But we can live in a, a day in a state of constant communication. I have a hundred ways on my cell phone that I can talk to my wife. And if I want to, I, I'm just at her beck and call and her at mine. And I can call her and communicate and talk to her at any time that I want. Something enters into my mind that might be of interest to her. I just tell it to her. Because she's right there, always available through technology. You know, through prayer. That's how we ought to be living with God. He's present with us all the time. We ought to start treating Him like He is. Talking with Him. Living in an attitude and disposition of prayer. And living a life of obedience and submission unto Him. Living our daily life saying, Lord, what do You desire out of my life? If we'll do that, you know what we'll find? We'll find that His favor rests upon our life. I see the favor that the pilgrim enjoys, but then I want you to notice the fortitude that the pilgrim exhibits. I'll say a word about this and be done. I love that last phrase in verse 4. It's what he says about those that dwell in the presence of God. He says, they will be still praising I love how he says that for this reason. Because there's something missing from that passage. When you use the word still, you're making a statement contingent upon something else. You're saying even though calamity befalls, he'd still be praising him. Even though uh, things don't go the way he expects, they'd still be praising him. My, uh, whenever it snowed, my little boy asked, are we still going to go to church? Or are we still going to go do this? In light of the snow that had fallen. There is always some context or some events that, that prompts and predicates the usage of this turn of phrase. But here we don't find one. Nowhere are we given a context to lay this within. And you know why? Because it's meant to supersede and transcend any context that arises in your life. Say, preacher, it says they'll be still praising Him. Still what? Still whatever. You're living in God's presence. You'll still be praising Him. Preacher, what if I, what if my health fails? What if I get this virus that they've got? You know, you'll still be praising Him. Preacher, what if my finances fall apart? What if I, I go broke, lose my home? You'll still be praising. If you're in His presence, if you're living in communion, fellowship with Him, you'll still be praising. Preacher, what if people hurt me, lie about me, turn their back on me, try to destroy me? If you're in fellowship with Him, you'll still be praising. Preacher, I don't believe it. Let me give you one proof text and we'll close. There was a man by the name of Job in the Old Testament. You know him and I know him. His life is defined by tragedy. The reason we know the book of Job is not because he won the publisher's sweepstakes. It's not because he won one of those raffles down at the car lot. The whole reason we know about Job is because his life fell to pieces. His life's defined by calamity, tragedy, and suffering. He lost everything a man could lose. There was literally nothing left. Everything that Job had and was, he put in that ash pile and began to scrape his bull with a potsherd. But you know what we find when we come to Job? We find that he makes his statement to his wife who was wavering in her resolve. He looks at her and says, Listen, the Lord gave and the Lord took away from us. He giveth and the Lord taketh away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. He looks and He says, Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord? And shall we not receive evil? He rationalized His calamity by saying it just made sense that every once in a while somebody's life would fall apart. Think about the mental and spiritual steel it took to make that statement. Later on in the book of Job, he turns to his friends who have been picking apart everything wrong with him. That's just like friends, isn't it? <laughs> Show up and tell you everything that you did wrong got you in this shape in the first place. He looks at his friends and he says, I don't understand what God's doing and I can't explain it and I can't find Him. I can't figure it all out. But though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. In other words, He said, it don't matter what happens. I'll still be praising Him when the sun comes up tomorrow. I'd say this, that when we spend time in God's presence, when we live perpetually in His presence, it readies us for anything we may encounter. Not because we won't encounter things, but because God will be our strength from strength to strength. Give us the peace of mind and the resolve of what we face. I'll tell you this, man, if 2021 looks anything, if 2021 does to 2020 what 2020 did to 2019, we're going to need some peace this next year. We're going to need some resolve this next year. We're going to need some faith this next year. I don't know what this next year does hold for us, but I will tell you this, if we'll live perpetually in His presence, we'll find that He's sufficient come what may. Let's bow together tonight as the musician comes to play. The altar is open. If God has dealt with your heart, I, I want you to come tonight. I want you to be obedient to Him. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. I ask it in Jesus' name.